It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome back to Preachers on Preaching. I'm recording this on Maundy Thursday. You'll probably hear it after Easter if you are an Easter preacher. I hope that you had a wonderful holiday and that you've had a chance to relax now in the afterglow of Easter. If you listened to Easter preaching, I hope you felt swept up in the immense event of resurrection. This week we have a special episode. I am speaking not to a preacher, but to a psychotherapist, Bill Borden, who teaches at the University of Chicago in the School for Social Work there, but also in the psychiatry department. Bill, in addition to being a professor, is also a deeply faithful churchgoer, so he's got a unique perspective on these things, I think. In addition to talking about this, he also turned me on to the ideas of the British psychiatrist Donald Winnicott. Winnicott has this terrific theory of the third space, a place between what he calls our inner experience and our outer reality that is neither the sort of land of the shifting uncertainties of your own subjectivity or the sometimes uncaring facts of the world all around you. There's remarkable application to this set of ideas for the work that we do in the pulpit, and Bill starts to unpack some of them in this conversation. Speaking of remarkable places, this week's episode of Preachers on Preaching is brought to you by the good people at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. They're now offering an online Doctor of Ministry degree for experienced ministers who want to strengthen the connection between theology and practice. You can study with Candler's renowned faculty in one of two tracks, either Biblical Interpretation and Proclamation or Church Leadership and Community Witness. Scholarships are available, and details about all these good things can be found at candler.emory.edu forward slash preaching. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bill Borden. Bill, we're we're having you in as a as, a, as an expert to uh, shed some light on the on the ways in which um, the psychological and the theological and church life intersect. But I think one of the things that's important to establish out of the gate is that you're not an outside expert; that you yourself are uh, are deeply immersed in the church. Could you tell us a little bit about your church background and, and your church life? Yeah, well, as a as a starting point, I want to say that I've been reading Christian Century for more than thirty years, uh, and it's been a a real pleasure to follow this uh, this podcast series. Though I've worked as a psychotherapist for almost 35 years, um, I've been very interested in, in preaching. Uh, I've been uh, an attentive uh, churchgoer most of my life, and uh, and and really appreciate the uh, the languages that we call upon uh, both. Uh, you know, in, in my work as a, as a psychotherapist, um, coming from a, a background in uh, psychology and neuroscience, and I also very much appreciate the languages that we encompass, I guess, in our, in our religious and spiritual traditions, and the ways in which I think, um, in my experience, they provide correctives for one another, strengthen one another in different ways, bring different points of emphasis to us, as we think about our human situation, our experience, um, and you've been in the nitty gritty of church life as well. You've 
You sing in the choir. You've served on a variety of different committees, right? You're- yeah, uh, yeah. Over over the years, I I uh, came to Chicago in uh, 1981 and. Uh, studied at the university and began at uh, Rockefeller Chapel uh, and then uh, uh, have uh, continued to be involved in church life over the years. Uh, more and more, actually, I, I began uh, singing. When I, when I turned 50, uh, I decided I wanted more than anything to sing in a church choir. And, really? So uh, at 50 you made that commitment? I did. That's great. And uh, I took... Uh, uh, voice lessons and joined the choir and uh, have been singing over these last 12 years. And uh, How has your experience of worship changed in moving from the pew to the choir loft? Um, I think of really having moved into what, uh, what I think of as a circle of essential others. We're together uh, twice a week, rehearsal um, and services. And over time, uh, in coming to know one another. I think there's a, a way in which um, I experience myself as held, held in my being. <laughs> so while you're worshiping with the choir, you're held by the choir yeah. in a way that, was that lacking when you were? I think uh, in the congregation, certainly there were, you know, were um, ways I could locate myself in the church and feel at home. But I think um, the experience of singing as a practice is something that has really opened things for me. I read somewhere, some article about church singing, that we make ourselves so vulnerable when we sing. They're like physically there's an openness and you're in a non-defensive posture. And I wonder if just hour after hour of being, pe- being with people, not only creating something beautiful, but also in working toward a shared goal, but also being in that position of physical vulnerability with folks week in and week out, if there's some kind of bond that is being cemented there? Oh, I think so. You know, we'll be talking about Donald Winnicott uh, today, and Winnicott himself loved to sing. And he thought about the voice as, as the most pure expression of true self. And he thought about an extraordinary vulnerability that is, uh, is operating um, uh, in our experience of uh, expressing ourselves in these ways. Did you think of the, the, the voice in terms of singing or the voice of speaking? Like both. Both, okay. Both. I want to talk a little bit, Bill, about your experience of church life or what you, not necessarily your own personal experience of church life, but the way in which churches like to talk of themselves as families, um, which is perhaps not the most helpful metaphor, but maybe it is. And, and the way in which people bring their drama, their psychological drama, into church life and then reenact it there, um, one of the things I've noticed over the years is that's more fraught, in my experience, in smaller churches, um, both for good and for ill. That the, the, the metaphor I've, I've, I've thought of for myself is when somebody gets really upset and misbehaves in a small church, it is like a relative throwing a fit at Thanksgiving, right? Like there's no hiding, Mm -hmm. you have to deal with it. Um, And it can be really upsetting or it can be really healing, but it's going to get dealt with. There's no ignoring it. In a larger church, it's a little bit more like somebody throwing a fit 
at the train station. <laughs> uh-huh. um, you can ignore it. The, the sort of larger rules of decorum can cover it. And then, again, there's a way in which uh, misbehavior maybe is not as tolerated in a healthy large church. But at the same time, you don't altogether have that opportunity to go to the one who is misbehaving and try to figure out what's going on. Um, do you think that church can be the site of therapeutic repair for people in terms of that family metaphor? I like to think so. You know, I like to think about the ways in which we uh, create um, opportunities for experiential learning, for enriching experience um, within the church, uh, and come to be able to make use of it. But I, I think uh, just as we start with the idea of church as family, I think that there are that uh, we're operating with, um, I guess, what I call uh, perceptual inclinations to see the old and the new, and what I think of as behavioral inclinations to evoke the old and the new. And certainly much of that's going to reflect our earlier family life, uh, our experience of others, and and ways in which, again, we have to think about what follows. And... um, I think about the, I guess what, in shorthand, I think of as checks and balances that operate in larger congregations. What I think of as more open systems in contrast to smaller The closed system closed. of a smaller family-sized church. Right, yeah. and, and ways in which I think there are ways of metabolizing, processing that experience. Sometimes I, I call upon an, an idea that Harry Stack Sullivan introduced. He talks about a selective neglect where we, you know, we, we attend to particular aspects of our experience. But, um, but neglect others. Yeah. I wonder, one of the things I've wondered before is if a person's homeostasis is family chaos and that that's what they grew up with and at some level are comfortable with, they then can come into church and in ways small or large try to recreate that chaotic experience for themselves. And one of the things I've wondered is, and I think I've witnessed this, is when it's working well, church will welcome that person in and also show them a new way of being in community where their impulse toward chaos gets tempered, gets corrected, isn't indulged, um, and is... I don't know if it's a therapeutic healing that takes place or if it's just an adept person figuring out the norms of a community, but it feels psychological to me when I see it happening. I think so, and I suppose at times we can think of it as management of a situation. Or, but at other times, I think we can really think of it as growth because um, you know, when we think of neurosis or when we think of you know, patterns of behavior that uh, perpetuate vicious circles, you know, we, we think about the ways in which, um, at times, others serve as accomplices. <laughs> they, in effect, join the dynamic as a representative other. I like to think of, um, I really like to, to think of the, uh, the preacher and others in a congregation as participant observers in the sense that whether we know it or not, we're embedded in the relational worlds of, of one another and ways in which we're going to participate in particular ways of being together, ways of relating, 
but as observers, we're also in a position to potentially um, identify problematic patterns and challenge them in different ways, often by not, you know, joining the dynamic, but rather by responding in a, what I call a non-complementary way in the sense that... Non-complementary? You know, non-complementary. So it's not, it's not a participant passive observer. It's a participant observer who says either implicitly or explicitly one way or another, I see this from you and here is another way or I'm going to act out another way or altogether we're going to model another way. Right. Yeah. Right. Stanley Harawas says somewhere that, that at its worst, church becomes a conspiracy of cordiality. Mm. Um, and I think that in this context, the, the context of what we're talking about right now, I think that's really true, that we will ignore misbehavior um, because we're too nice to call it out. Because, um, And I guess that's part of what this distinction I'm drawing between my own experience of large and small churches. In some ways, it's easier to ignore misbehavior in a larger church, um, which is something I miss occasionally from my life in a small church, even though when people in my life in a small church were really, when church members were really acting out in ways that didn't feel like they had to do with what was actually happening in the congregational life, it was really upsetting. Uh, My heart goes out to people who are um, both committing professionally or committing their own faith lives to um, family-sized churches. I think it's a real, but again, when it works, it can be this powerful experience that you can't replicate anywhere else, but it also can be, I think, harder and sharper. Oh, I, I think so. Um, and uh, ways in which I think you're forced to really meet and match, bring hard edges at times. Absolutely. I, here, here's, a, here's a story um, from the first church that I served that sort of fleshes this out, I hope. I had a parishioner there who suffered from a variety of developmental disabilities and lived with his mother. And his mother was a very difficult woman. And... Um, had her own traumas and, and, and was living out her, her life painfully. And at some level sort of profited from his, I mean, that's a harsh way of putting it, but lived off of his SSI. And I came in totally naive, didn't know how to be a pastor, but I did know a little bit about working with developmental, developmentally disabled adults because I had done that as a part-time job through seminary. So I assessed the situation in my full ignorance and said, oh, this guy should have a job. Um, there's places where he could work. So I, I connected with, some, with him with some social services, and we found him a job. He then had his SSI check diminished, which threatened his mother's livelihood. She came to me and told me that if I didn't take this back, she would kill me. She like threatened my life. So it was like, oh, you know, I was, I was terrified. So over the course of the next five or six years, she and I had a very charged and thorny relationship. And she did with the whole church. She did not worship in the church or come to it. Um, and she, I think, was threatened by the love that her son was feeling there, maybe. I'm not sure what. But she had, I was not the only person that she was hostile with in the congregation. So eventually, she died. And we held her funeral at the church. And her son didn't know what was, he was in his mid-30s. He didn't know what was going to happen to him. He was worried he was going to become homeless. And this is a small church of, you know, 150 people. All 150 people came to her funeral. And this was a person who had been, you know, threatening and volatile with almost every person there. 
they all came and grieved her. And the healing that her son experienced as a result of that, um, of his own grief and fear, was, I've never seen anything like it. Um, it was so powerful. And I think those dramas can play out in really strong and intense ways in, in church life, right? Oh, I think so. And I think about how these um, have different outcomes from earlier experiences. I, I always think about how we potentially change trajectories. So if this young man's experience primarily in life was one of rejection and abandonment at that crucial moment, to have it instead be a community rallying around him, that's going to change his trajectory, right? I think this is how we change developmental pathways, you know. Bill, you've mentioned Donald Winnicott a couple of times in the, in the course of this conversation, and, and you have said to me before that you think of Winnicott uh, in Christian Wyman's term as an accidental theologian, as someone who didn't necessarily think he was doing theology proper the way Paul Tillich or Karl Barth might think they are when they're sitting down to write, but is also at the same time capable of or able to accidentally crack open these ideas about God and our life before God. Can you tell us a little bit about Winnicott and why you think preachers should be reading him? Donald Winnicott uh, was trained as a pediatrician. Uh, He became uh, a psychiatrist, a psychoanalyst, uh, continued to actually practice medicine as well, uh, and uh, introduced uh, a developmental perspective that uh, came to challenge um, certain views of religious and spiritual life that uh, Freud uh, and, and the more classical psychoanalytic paradigm had, uh, had, had held, and he uh, began to introduce um, a language, a way of thinking about uh, the ways in which we work to develop capacities for belief in experience, for faith. Um, and he um, began to uh, think about uh, the nature of religious experience, of religious life, of spiritual experience, and, um, uh, and really shifted, I think, ways of seeing um, uh, experience that, uh, that really worked to affirm the importance of this in health and well-being, the common good. So he was, uh, he was one of, of uh, a series of thinkers. Was that a radical, that's a radical break with Freud, right? Who thought that God is illusory and, and that yes. we're suffering from this delusion that, we need, that needs to be corrected. So Winnicott wants to say instead, no, that there is, even from, and I'm not saying that Winnicott was agnostic, but even if from an agnostic perspective, that there is psychological value in faith. Yes, when Winnicott would would find himself saying, uh, you know, things like living creatively is is a healthy state and compliance is a a sick basis for life. We are poor indeed if we're only sane. And we're poor indeed if we're only sane, so that faith can 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 throw us into a more imaginative realm beyond that that is greater than sanity somehow. Yeah, uh, he. He often quoted Chesterton as saying, the madman is not the man who's lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. Mm-hmm. And, and Winnicott was deeply troubled by the ways in which certain thinkers would pathologize our experience of illusion. And, and Winnicott thought it was um, 
crucial for us to develop capacities for illusion in health and well-being, to be able to believe in, to be able to imagine, to be able to, uh, to locate ourselves in an experience of, of holding that he... So that if we want to collapse everything into the rational or define the rational as the only um, reality, that we're, we're also at the same time sort of closing off our capacity to be healthy people. We're, we're really impoverished. Did he think of that? Did he, did he find that from, from his work with children who, who do walk that line between the imaginative and the fantastic and the rational like more adeptly than adults do, right? Is that, is that where he took... Is that where he got the insight from? Um, he, there's a passage I want to share, actually, from uh, his, one of his last books. It's called Playing and Reality. Playing and Reality? Playing and Reality. It was published in 1971, he, the year he died. Um, and uh, uh, it's, uh, it's a work that has really um, shaped understanding and practice in the last quarter century. Um, he's talking about children and the experience of illusion. Uh, he says, the, the subject of illusion will be found to provide the clue to a child's interest in bubbles and clouds and rainbows and all mysterious phenomena. And so too to the child's interest in fluff. <laughs> Somewhere here too is the interest in the breath, which never decides whether it comes from within or without. But he's really trying to capture, I think, the, uh, the, the, the translucent, the mystifying quality of imaginative experience. Uh, That's so poetic. It's, uh, I love it. Do you think then, it, at some level, are we having that experience in worship? Does liturgy do that for us? I hope that we have moments. I hope that we have times when we can find this, rediscover this, make use of this. When he says illusion, I mean, a, a theistic person is going to have a reaction to that, to say, well, this isn't illusory. We're talking about something that's real. How does that concept transfer? Winnicott is, um, in his developmental psychology, which I realize we're not able to lay out fully in, in, this, uh, in, in this conversation, but Winnicott... Um, said, you know, Freud helped us think about inner realities, and he helped us think about outer realities. But he said there's need for uh, a third statement where we think about the space between inner experience and outer reality. And he thought of that as transitional phenomena. He called it intermediate experience, that there's this third region where we are able to... Um, to create an experience of illusion that is an admixture, you know, of, of, inner of the inner and the, outer. and the outer, and ways in which uh, this is where we, uh, he thinks of religious life really as, as carried out uh, in this intermediate realm uh, where we're able to, uh, to really um, experience what he thinks of as a holding and, uh, and allow ourselves to, to co-create an experience. So we both get outside of ourselves in religious life, but also remain ourselves. Yes. That's, I do think, I, I wonder if our, like our tradition, 
uh, which is word-based, rational, liberal Protestantism, might benefit from his insights in, liturgically and might think, not that we want to necessarily start blowing bubbles on a Sunday morning, but if we think of that imagistically as, um, you know, where are we creating the space for a deep experience of breath, of bubbles, of light in our worship life together, rather than it operating purely in the realm of possibility and idea, which I think is where we get, and word, where yes. we, get, we get stuck there. And maybe that comes back to singing. I think of a photograph in a church bulletin on a Sunday where there's, uh, I believe, a, a child uh, jumping uh, in a fire bonfire, I believe. Yeah. Um, and uh, now I think um, ways in which ritual can potentially create certain kinds of experience. He, Winnicott was the person who developed the idea of a transitional object. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so the, the, the stereotype of a transitional object is like Linus's blanket, right? Yeah. Which yeah. is this thing that is much more than the thing itself. Um, can you talk about that? Well, Winnicott, you know, as a pediatrician, he had this way of uh, seeing the unnoticed obvious. And he noticed that um, babies would bring toys. You know, you think of the, the teddy bear. And he got curious about... Um, the, uh, the functions of these objects. And he really worked out of his experience. You know, there, there's a way in which he's very empirical and working from the concrete particularity of ordinary everyday life and really trying to think about the functions and the meanings of, uh, of objects and behavior. And he came to think of the transitional object really as something that the child creates uh, in the course of development as... Uh, one uh, moves out of an experience of um, um, an attunement uh, and a synchrony that Winnicott thought of as a kind of um, omnipotent experience, of the, the child's experience of omnipotence. At the start of life, he imagines caretakers really work to bring an attunement and a synchrony to the child and sponsor this experience. Of so the one. child herself feels omnipotent? Yeah, okay. being, as being in possession and control of the world. And How old would this... What, what? Really the earliest weeks, months of life. Okay. And, uh, and Winnicott thinks about the ways in which the caretaking experience, the experience of holding... Mm-hmm is going to create conditions that allow the child to have this experience of illusion. Um, uh, in his model, it's crucial that the caretaker come to limit one's responsiveness so that the child is able to uh, really move into an experience of the outer world with limits, and he thinks about a disillusioning that's crucial. So that not every time I cry, someone's right. going to come running? Is that right. the idea? Right. But the transitional object is something that the child creates to negotiate this transition, you know, midway between the two um, places. And um, he developed uh, this idea further to uh, encompass what he thought of as transitional phenomena. So let me stick for a second, though. So then the notion of like a security blanket, not to get stuck on Linus here, but would be this thing that I had when I felt that the world was safe and responsive to me. And now I'm maturing 
into a recognition that the world is not entirely safe and not entirely responsive to me, but I have this thing that can be like a physical bridge between those two stages of development. Is that, and, and therefore I'm going to be deeply attached to it. Yes. Yeah. Um, he says, I read up a little bit on this and, and he says that you can explain that away, right? You can say to the kid, well, that's a teddy bear and we bought it for nine ninety five at Toys R Us and there were 10,000 of them just like it. And he says, or maybe this is your restating him that under the guise of rationality, we can destroy the paradox um, and the power then that this thing has, um, what does that do to a to a kid when that happens? We, we uh, well, actually, I, I, you know, he says we don't ask, did you find that or did you make that? You know, we really let it be. Let it let it be. And and Winnicott has a lot of faith in the child's capacity to override our reduction in these okay. ways. But I th- what I think is so interesting about that is so the child can override our adult impulse toward reductionism. Um, and I wonder, again, for a person of faith, I can't help but think about the Eucharist when we're having mm. this conversation, right? And, and again, this might be one of those places where the categories are not speaking the same truth, right? Theological and psychological categories are not saying the same thing. But it is kind of interesting to use a psychological lens, not in an, not in an attempt to um, understand it differently or understand it concretely or correctly, but just as a way of seeing differently, to think of the bread and the wine as transitional object, right? And that under the guise of rationality, we can certainly destroy their power, um, but that they do have this ability to bridge between these two Realms. One of the most beautiful ideas I've ever read about communion is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, where he says, before the fall, everything that was carried God sacramentally. So God was on the wind and in the earth. And that after the fall, that's not the case any longer. However, in communion, the wheat and the bread and the grape and the wine hearken back to that Edenic reality and are it alive right now in our fallen world. Here they are. Um, And so they're exceptional because of that, because they're sacramental. But there was a time and there will be a time when they're unexceptional or where everything is exceptional. But in the meantime, they're transitional, right? Yes. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Winnicott, you know, was very interested in, you know, our experience of uh, the Eucharist. He talked about the crucifix, he talked about the Torah, you know, and, and how he thought of these really as, uh, as uh, expressions of, of meaning and values that transcend their, their physical features. And uh, he says, you know, they, they, we, we rediscover their significance because we perceive them as admixtures of what is real, what is material, and what is objective. Um, and creatively reshaped, he says, by the meaning that we bring to the object in these experiences of um, transitional phenomena and intermediate um, Do you worry at all as the church in America, at least, and certainly this has happened, is happening in Europe, goes through its current state of decline, that we're going to lose as a culture our capacity for these paradoxes and this kind of imaginative play um, and become less healthy in, across the board? I worry, uh, I worry all the time about this as I, uh, 
as I, I think about uh, the, the ways in which we foreclose, override, um, preempt um, the experience, the, the conditions that, uh, that make it possible for us to, uh, to find ourselves in these ways. Um, and, uh, and I think that, that uh, there's a, a ruthlessness in, in our culture that um, really uh, threatens uh, this. Bill, if you were to suggest to our listeners one work of Winnicott's that you think would be illuminating for preachers to read, what would you suggest? I would actually recommend two. Uh, the first is an introduction to Winnicott uh, by Adam Phillips uh, called Winnicott published uh, by Harvard University Press, 1988. It's a wonderful introduction to his work. Uh, and then I would recommend uh, Plain and Reality, uh, again published in 1971. It's a challenging work, but I think uh, so rich as we think about um, the experience, Winnicott says, the accent on experience of, of religious life, of spiritual life, uh, of the sacred. and. Um, Great. I uh, think he, uh, there's so much we haven't been able to, to think about uh, that, that Winnicott brings, but, uh, you know, his, um, the wholeheartedness of his language, um, the way he brings a capacity for, for wonder, for, it's a, he's undisturbed by mystery, you know, and a, a way in which he really challenges, I think, uh, what you were just uh, describing, you know, in our culture. Um, I think it's good too for Christians, and church people, or preachers to to hear a voice that isn't our voice, recognizing the importance of what we're trying to do. Um, that might not even speak our language or think it's important for the same reasons we think it's important. Like I think it's important to preach the gospel because I think the cross is true. You know, that's why I want to do this. Um, that might not be why Donald Winnicott thinks it's important, but but to pr- expand the parameters of appreciation for what's happening in church life, I think, is really good for us. Um, I want to ask, go back to Freud as we wrap up, and and ask again. Now, my understanding of this might not be accurate, so please correct me. But um, if if I remember correctly, Freud wants to say that a person's image of God is going to be determined by. Um, where they are in their sort of Oedipal um, drama complex uh, as a young child, right? So that the quality of relationship I have with my father is going to, at some level, determine who I understand God to be. Um, Van Dusen Hunzinger asked this interesting question in this book that I'm so enamored of, where she says, if that's true, right, if if that is accurate, could we then think about how a person's maturing and changing understanding of God through their own faith life and immersion in the church could change their relationship to that primary object that first created their understanding of God so that through my devotion to God, is it possible that my relationship with my primary object is going to change, is going to be transformed? Do you know what I'm trying to ask? Yes, I think um, 
I think about the, the ways we think about uh, a transformation in, in this sense and, um, and a different kind of relationship to that. Um, I mean, Freud thinks about the ways in which we're bound, you know, in certain ways and, and limited fixed. in his view, fixed. You know, a, a, an obsessional neurosis is one way that he thinks about religious life, you know, religious uh, behavior. Um, but can my understanding of my primary object be rearticulated or therapeutically healed or changed via my relationship with God because of my relationship with God? I believe it can be. Uh, I, I really want very much to, uh, to think that. Person of faith, do you have a hard time then, also as a as a as an analyst or as a psychotherapist, not pushing religion on um, patients who would clearly benefit from a religious life? Um, I'm always, you know, following the patient's lead, um, like Winnicott. Um, I'm I'm very heartened when one is able to believe in something as distinguished from believing that something is true. So I think about capacities for belief and for faith. And I want very much to support the development of uh, experience that strengthens that and to, uh, to encourage, I guess, uh, exploration. Um, but uh, I, um, I'm there to be found in certain ways, but I don't want to presume to know and introduce um, ways of seeing that, uh, that would be leading the process. So, so in order for your so, work to work, it has to be very client-centered. It can't come in with this set of assumptions. Right. Here's what's... Right. There, there's one thing I've noticed in my um, conversations with mental health practitioners that I, that I wonder if preachers and the church could learn from, or maybe these two things don't translate, um, which is, it seems to me these days, most of the mental health practitioners that I talk to are, 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 have a, are syncretists. They, they, they take from Freud, they take from Jung, take from Winnicott, take from object relations, take from behavioral work, and, and like take from these different schools of thought and employ these different ideas in service of the well-being of a given client. Um, whereas I think preachers can tend to get arrested doctrinally in a certain camp. So I'm not going to borrow from Bart Tillich, Marcus Borg, and Luke Johnson. I'm going to, I'm going to have a particular perspective and I'm going to ride that perspective. Um, and I, and I, and maybe that's the nature of, of the religious way of thinking is to need to be not narrow, but need to be very specific. But I look at, um, the way therapists work these days, at least it seems to me, you don't meet very many people who are like, I'm a Freudian and Freud is right on all matters and I'm going to stick with him. The way you may well meet a liberal Protestant who wants to say, uh, you know, Schleiermacherian assumptions are true for all time and I am never going to consider that somebody else who disagrees with Schleiermacher might actually have an interesting and helpful perspective for this particular passage or need in the life of my church. Um, I don't know. I think we could. I think our field could learn from yours in terms of your ability to 
uh, to embrace diverse perspectives. Yeah, I mean, this is where uh, William James has been so helpful to me as I think about uh, a pluralism and a pragmatism. And uh, I really appreciate that uh, I think of uh, these as incommensurable really paradigms as we think about the religious and the psychological. And I'm, uh, I'm very much uh, an integrative uh, practitioner in the sense that I call upon all of the schools of thought. My center of gravity is the, the psychoanalytic tradition, but I draw on cognitive, behavioral, humanistic um, points of view as I carry out my work. Um, in light of the concrete particularities of the, the case and, and but, what but works. You, but do you think that if a preacher were to say, I draw from all schools of theology, um, does that uh, fail at some level? I think that we, my view is we need a center of gravity and a coherent, a co- you know, um, point of view, theology. We need, I believe, hard edges to press against, uh, to challenge us, in, in my view. And it's been very important for me to be able to find, uh, you know, uh, uh, that in, in my experience of church. Uh, I don't want uh, the same experience of pluralism that I have in my work as a clinician. That's really interesting. Um, um, I, I think that's, uh, that's, well, that's helpful to me anyhow, because as you know, um, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I, the metaphor I carry around in my head sometimes, I, I do think that we could, that, that, that preachers could benefit from being more broad-minded in terms of our theological approaches, even as we adhere to those which speak to us the most clearly or those that we think are the most true, those perspectives. In doing psychotherapy, I've... Um used an approach I call assimilative integration in the sense that, as I said, I have a a home base, a center of gravity in the psychoanalytic tradition. Um, And over time, um, I've been able to assimilate certain ideas and ways of working that I can justify and defend within the frame uh, that I work from. So there is a coherence, uh, but there is, uh, you know, a way in which I'm uh, trying to draw on different traditions in light of my tasks. Well, I think, and and this is one of the places where, again, there's an asymmetry here. Um, What you're doing, if I understand it correctly, is you're bringing all of this theory to the service of a given individual and their concreteness and their particular needs. And there are, of course, going to be some universals that you see, I'm sure. But the point is the well-being of the one person there that you're working with. That's not the point of preaching, right? I mean, that has a, we have a wholly different charge and task. Yeah, um, Bill, this has been great. Thank you so much for the good conversation. Thank you. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.